Hey, this is Jeff Russo, and you are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us all over the socials at thegbbpodcast. I am your host, Jamie Green, and you can find me at the Roarbots on Twitter and thereabouts. Uh, and welcome back to another episode, another week, and it's great to have you back. Regular listeners of the show will know that we like to jump around quite a bit. We talk to a lot of creative people every week, week in, week out, but they're not all the same. They work they work in different industries, they have different creative outputs. We talk to authors, we talk to actors, we talk to directors, we talk to animators. And this week we're moving over to the world of music and, and composing for film scores and TV scores to be specific. My guest this week is Siddhartha Kosla, Sid, Sid Kosla. If you are a uh, familiar with This Is Us on NBC, you are familiar with Sid. You are familiar with his music. It has probably made you cry on more than one occasion. This Is Us is on NBC. The third season, I believe, is going to be premiering later this month. Uh, this is September of 2018, if you're listening to it in the future. Uh, and welcome from the future, by the way. Anyway, uh, the third season is going to be uh, beginning on NBC later this month. And if you watch the show, you know that it is uh, kind of notorious for making the audience cry, making the actors cry, making the crew cry on set. There are stories all over. All you got to do is Google it. And you can see that a lot of the uh, the actors and the crew members will say, yep, 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 we, we cry on set too. Uh, the show is emotional, it is raw, it is real, and a huge part of that uh, emotionality, I think, is driven home in the form of Sid Kosla's music. In many cases, it's understated. It's sometimes just a, you know a bare piano playing. It's just a couple instruments, just you know playing a, a slow progression in the background. But it really, really. Um, dives deep into your soul. I, I don't know if that's that's overselling it, but if you watch the show, you know what I mean. Uh, we talk a lot this week about his music for This Is Us. Uh, it's not just the score that he does. He's also written a few original songs for that show, When, when need, the Need Arises. He is also concurrently also scoring Marvel's Runaways, uh, which is a Hulu original, and the second season is going to be dropping in its entirety this December. So if you watch Runaways... Uh, you know that um, the second season is coming, and the, his music for that show is so different from This Is Us. It's it's that's an action show. It's a superhero show, but it still has heart. It still has uh, the characters and the emotion is still at its core, but it is a very different sound. Um, Sid comes from a background in music. Obviously, he has a band, Gold Spot. They've got three albums out. They've been around for a while. Uh, some of that. The songs, some of his Goldspot songs, have actually made it into This Is Us as, as background music or as, you know, centerpiece music for, for a specific scene. So I'm going to shut up here, but our conversation is great. We talk about his entire career. We talk about Goldspot. We talk about uh, his family and, and the upbringing that he had. And um, we talk about how he got into scoring for TV. We talk about Runaways. We talk about This Is Us. We talk about what he's got coming uh, in the future, 
And uh, I'm really looking forward to you guys hearing this, and I hope you enjoy, and I hope you come back next week. Hit subscribe if you like this. We've got a lot of great conversations, a lot of great episodes coming up this fall, and uh, I wouldn't want you to miss any of them. So hit subscribe, come back week after week. You hit me up on Twitter, on, uh, hit us up on Facebook, let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear, that kind of thing. Uh, you can find me at The Roarbots on Twitter mostly. Uh, I'm not really on Facebook very much. Uh, you can find the show at The GBB Podcast or online at thegbbpodcast.com. And until next week, I'm Jamie Green, and here is my conversation with Sid Kosla. Enjoy and take care. Siddhartha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's just awesome to have you. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, I wanted to start off with uh, a question that I, I tend to ask a lot of people, but did you come from a musical family? Not really. Um, I came from a family of, of uh, I came from a family that loved music, mm-hmm. um, but nobody in my family was particularly musical. Um, my mom. Would, would sing all the time growing up, but not professionally. And, and um, you know, she, she, she had like a very pretty voice, um, but, not, but, but her pitch wasn't great. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad's pitch was great, but he didn't have a very good voice. Okay. So maybe the combination of the two of them <laughs> created something musical. Yeah. You got the best pieces of the puzzle, right? <laughs> I, th- I, I like to think so, yes. So, not having come from a musical family, um, per se, it wasn't something that was running in the family, what led to your wanting to start a band? Like, where did that come from? Um, I, I spent my, most, so much of my childhood singing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I grew up singing, um, you know, my parents came to this country in the late 70s, and uh, from India, and so they brought with them all their music that they grew up listening to, Indian music. And um, as a child of Indian immigrants, um, you know there was there was uh, there was a there was a big part of of my upbringing was um, was making sure I kind of held on to some of my identity as an Indian, mm-hmm. and. Um, and my parents would, you know, they I, they educated me through my musical education came through these tapes that they brought with them, and um, and my mom noticed at a young age that I could sing, and she encouraged me to sing all the time. So you know, every 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 Sunday we'd go to temple and um, the Hindu temple that we would go to, and and I would my mom would be like, okay, you have to sing this song in front of 150 people, <laughs> and so. And so I grew up singing in front of people and um, learned how to do it, you know, all because of my mom who pushed me so much to do it. Um, and and then when I got to high school, you know, I started listening to not like I started listening to Western music. I started I started getting into the Beatles and the Smiths and the Cure and all these bands. And mm-hmm. then my friends were into music and bands and and we started a band in high school and um 
and that was kind of the first band I was ever in, and I loved it. And and then when I got to college, I continued singing, and and afterwards, it just it was um, my my best friend from childhood called me up right before we graduated and was like, "Hey, let's start. Do you want to start a band?" <laughs> and um, at that time, I was debating going to law school, and I'd taken the LSAT um, and ended up canceling my score and Ugh. and 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 uh, and becoming a musician. <laughs> okay, so I have to ask. Yeah. What kind of a response or a reaction did you get from your parents? Because starting a band, especially if you were on the road to law school, dropping that and starting a band is probably, I would say, not one of those, you know, top three dreams immigrant parents have for their kids. No, it's not. It doesn't, I don't think it's like the top hundred. No. And, and, and yeah, it was, um, you know, I think my parents have always been incredibly supportive of, of whatever I've wanted to do. Obviously with, you know, they, but and and despite that support, there was there was reluctance. Mm-hmm. Um, there definitely was, and and they and they expressed that. Um, you know, I think they, and rightfully so. You know, they came to this country with eight dollars, and um, and for them, their path to living the American dream was through school and higher education, and then getting jobs. And it was this kind of, you know, it was this very, it, it was a it was a more predictable path to achieving your goals. Um, whereas music and entertainment, this industry doesn't work that way. You know, it's, it's, um, there's a lot of ebbs and flows and turns in different directions you don't expect. And, and I don't, I think that was just so foreign to them and they feared for what that would mean for my future, you know, and it was a huge risk. Um, but I think the other side of it is that my father always taught me to do everything with passion and, and, and it's better to not do it at all, you mm-hmm. know? And so I think they also realized and saw the commitment that I had to it. And um, I, think, I think that was the silver lining in all of it for them. They're like, well, at least he like really yeah. is passionate and, and hardworking and as the work ethic and whatever else you need to kind of keep you through it. Um, and, you know, I think if some, you know, the thing that a lot of immigrant kids, you know, end up in, in some of the more traditional professional careers. Um, and it makes sense, you know, I, I mean, I almost ended up there and, and I would have been perfectly happy being there too. I yeah. don't think, you know, but I, but I think being the son of an immigrant taught me, um, taught me how to have grit a little bit and not give up on your dreams, you know. And yeah. and I think that's what I applied here. Um, as long as we're talking about your your parents, I was wondering if you could share the story behind the song Evergreen Cassette. If I mistook the sun from angle, I'd fly up there and reach for it too. It's the story of something older and bigger than me and you and you told it in a letter in the form of an evergreen cassette and I played it in the morning till after the sun would set see my 
So my parents came here from India in the late 70s with $8, as I said before, mm-hmm. and they were both in school full-time and working full-time, you know, when they weren't in school. So they were, they were ba- basically, they, they had no time for each other or for anything else um, except for school and work, and that was it. And we lived in New Haven, and uh, they lived in New Haven, and then I was born, and they had to make the very tough decision of sending me back to India to be raised by my grandparents while they stayed here and built a life for us. Mm-hmm. And that was the hardest decision that they've ever had to make, I think, you know, is, 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 is sending your newborn child um, to be raised, you know, by you know, your parents in, in India, you know, without right. you. And, sure. and that, 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 that's such a tough decision for them to have made. And, and at that time it was $24 a minute to make a long distance phone call. So there was no real way we could communicate that made any sort of, that made financial sense. Mm, right. And, and so my mom would record her voice on a cassette tape and send it to me in India and my grandparents would play it for me and I would hear her singing songs telling me she loved me and I'd hear my dad say you know the same and um, and I would say something unintelligible back because <laughs> I was you know a baby or I was two at the time maybe um, almost two I think at the time and and we exchanged those words and songs over that single tape for two years recorded over that same tape over and over again mm-hmm. and and on my last album uh, I have a band called Gold Spot and um, and on my last album I, called Aerogram I the entire album is about my parents journey to the US and our family's story um, immigration story and one of the songs I wrote in there was called Evergreen Cassette which is about my mom and about that tape do you still have the cassette my mom has it but she won't let me anywhere near it (laughs) thinks i'll lose it (laughs) so you just kept recording over and over so whatever's on that tape now is the last thing that was recorded right yeah Mm -hmm. wow so how old were you when you were living there two all right so you don't remember it or probably you don't remember no it's just i don't remember it i mean I'm sure my, you know, it was it was in such a formative stage that I was, that things that happened that time impacted me greatly. I'm sure, but I don't remember. Yeah, oh, I mean that's what I was going to ask because I'm sure, like you said, this was incredibly hard on your parents. Um, you know, yeah. it was the decision that they felt they needed to make in your best interest, um, and it had a lasting impact on them. I'm sure, but I was just curious whether you think whether you had a memory of it or not whether you think it had an impact on you growing up and how you related to the world and to other people. Yeah, I think it did have an impact on me. And my, I mean, you're asking, you know, what kind of effect being there without my parents had on me? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, because, I mean, as a child, I mean, birth to four, even though we have no memory, we're, obviously, we're the most impressionable. And I feel like even if you don't remember, it probably had some sort of subconscious effect on, I mean, we're talking about you, but on any child who who has to, you know, have that sort of experience for for good or ill. And I'm just wondering whether you think that you still have parts of that with you. I do. I mean, I think one one beautiful thing that came out of it is 
my appreciation for a big family and and um, and understanding that family is not just your nuclear one. And and I think growing up around my grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles, and we lived in a house in my in that house in Delhi in India, where my grandparents, their two sons, their wives, their kids, mm-hmm. all under one roof. And so, you know, it did teach me a lot about the beauty of a joint family and about about how family isn't just limited to, you know, your parents and siblings yeah. um, or siblings, you know. And, and, and I think that's a nice thing that I carry with me. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I love that. Um, and I have those relationships with, I still have those relationships with people outside of my nuclear family. Yeah. And so I think that was a very important thing that I learned from that time. And, um, and, and there's something about being without your parents, maybe at a very, very young age that kind of forces you to adapt, you know? Um, I don't know. It's like you got to, you, you figure stuff out on your own a little yeah. bit more. And I, I found that it's, maybe it's helped me. It's, you know, there's, um, there's a certain amount of grit in me, I think that comes from that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's also helped me in my career. Not, I don't give up, you know, and I, and I think I've, 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 I've been, you know, I started a band in 1999 and like, and, you know, and, and worked really, really hard and never gave up on that dream. And, um, and even when it, it went south, you know, I still didn't give up. And I think that's what's brought me here. So, yeah, I, I, I see it all as good. I don't, I don't see any negative in it in my adult life. That's great. Um, so you mentioned this. So how did you, I guess, take what you had learned as a songwriter and as a member of a band in Goldspot, and how did you, I guess, translate those skills and that knowledge to composing for TV? And how similar are the two for you? The greatest thing I learned from being in a band, um, I learned from the people that I worked with. You know, I, I had a, there's, there's a producer engineer named Jeff Peters who worked with the Beach Boys for a long time who engineered and produced my records with me for every album, every Goldsmith album we did. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Jeff is one of the best engineers in the world, I think. And, and what I learned in that process was how to record, you know, and how to, um, how to make a finished product of music that actually sounds good. And, um, and that has life and charm and soul, but also has, um, has a quality to it that's that that's as as that's that's made with quality and i apply that every day in my scores for tv and film because you know i play a lot of my own instruments on these scores and i have to record a lot of these own instruments myself so the engineering side of it is something that is so handy mm. like when i'm recording my score for this is us for example um or runaways or anything else i'm working on it's just me in my studio recording it. Um, you know, I have a, I have an assistant composer that helps me out on, on, on my projects as well. Um, you know, and, and, and I have a great team, but everyone's kind of in their own space. So I don't have engineers and people recording for me. I'm doing it all here myself. And, and I think that comes from that world. And oftentimes on projects, I'm, I'm not only asked to score, but also asked to write original songs. Right. And, 
having the background of a songwriter, you know, helps me immensely in that regard. Yeah. Um, I'm going to come back to that in a second, but you, I'm just curious when you're writing for TV, whether it's This Is Us or Runaways or any of the other shows that you've worked on. How often do you do you write the music with the intention that the audience should notice it? And how often is it just background music to set a theme? Um, I never consciously try to make anyone notice the music. I think I just do what feels right for the scene. And inevitably, my taste as a musician as an artist, as someone who absorbs art and what I like to watch and not watch or what I like to read, I, I, I opt for subtlety more than the other, you know, extreme. And and so my music tends to feel under the skin, I think, is mm-hmm. the best way to describe it. Like on This Is Us, you feel the score more than you hear it oftentimes. Yeah. And I think that's, and I'm proud of that because it's very easy, I think, to make things big and sweeping, you know, and make them overly like make them heard. And it's I think it's more challenging sometimes to be under the skin. Um, and and so on a show like This Is Us, where the performances are so strong and the writing is so strong, um, you have to create and carve out room for those performances to shine. And it's and the music has its spotlight for sure um but you know i I, even when it has its spotlight it's still understated you know season two of this is us had all these slow motion uh dialogue less montages that Mm -hmm. were just silent and there was score all over them and even in those situations the score was not this huge big sweeping thing um it had the subtlety that um, that I think supports the show in the right way. So I don't I don't ever try to yeah. make it heard or not. I, I think I it all depends on the show and sure. on that show. We need to play. We need to err on the side of subtle. So when you're writing for television, though, like if you're if you're recording an album with with your band, you know you can sit down and you can write it beginning to end and and tell your mm-hmm. own story from beginning to end. If you're scoring a film. You've got the complete screenplay, so you know what the entire story is. But when you're writing for TV, right. you're doing it episodically. So, you know, when you started on season one, let's just say of This Is Us, because that's what mm-hmm. you were talking about, you don't necessarily, not necessarily, you don't know where they're going to go in season two or beyond. So how do you right. how do you find the right tone and theme at the beginning when there's so much unknown? That's a good question. Um, I think the beauty of working in television is that you don't know where it's going necessarily unless you're Dan Fogelman, you know, uh-huh. and, um, who created the show. And so, and anyone else who shared that information. <laughs> um, so, uh, for me, and I have, and I have some of that information. So it's not like I don't have that information, but, um, for me, 
I like to score the show like I'm an invisible character on the show. And what that means is there's someone, I, I feel like there's, there's something observational about the score, like it's commenting on what's happening. And, and I try to treat each episode like it's its own little mini film. Mm. And, and so there is a theme for an episode that weaves in and out of the entire episode. If you listen to my score, especially in season two, you'll hear a cue, you'll, you'll hear like a melody in an, in an episode. And that same melody will come back 15 different ways in that episode. And so I'm able to kind of score to the larger picture of these characters, but treat each episode like it's its own mini film. And, and that way, um, I feel like I, I'm part, there's a, there's a larger picture at play, um, maybe not the largest picture that the show has to offer. And, and, um, and that allows me to think of this like many films, you know, by having one theme that goes through each episode. So, um, I, and it's fun not knowing also everything that happens because I'm learning as I'm going, just like the audience is. And so when something five, if something happens in a particular episode and, 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 and the following season, you begin like, this is, this is us as a show that's really about, you know, to me, it's about this larger connectivity of life, this connectivity between people across generations and this idea that, um, that your great grandfather, great grandmother could have done something to have impacted you and, and you the same for, for, you know, 10 generations down the line of you yeah. after you. And so I found working on the show, like season two, there are things that have happened where I'm like, Oh, <laughs> we hinted at this in season one. And now here's the answer. Uh, here's, here's why that happened. And so that can bring that same theme back and then it connects us in that special way. So I enjoy that part of it because I'm also discovering the story as the audience is on some level. Yeah. Do you see your music as another character or is it just there to support the actual human characters? Both. I mean, I think like initially it was there to support, but I think it's become a, its own little character. Um, and I say that not out of bragging or anything or thinking it's a cool big thing to say, but I think it has become important because there's a signature sound to the show and when you hear the music come in at certain points you begin to feel something i think and that's become and that's because the music almost feels there's something nostalgic about it 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 feels like memories on some level and i so i think it it has a special place in the show for sure um, and it's a very special, unique sound that I think people have become now familiar with two seasons in. Yeah. You mentioned a couple, a few minutes ago, you mentioned that, you know, you do have to write original songs for the show sometimes as well. Are, are writing, is songwriting like three minute songs and versus um, longer instrumental score, are those different creative muscles for you or are they just kind of different sides of the same coin? Um, they are completely different yeah. to me. Um, you know, there's, I, I find writing songs to be so much harder than writing score. Um, it just, it's, it's, maybe it's cause it's a muscle that I don't use as much as I used to use. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, I, I think a song also is just, is so featured and it's difficult. It's not difficult for me, but it takes me more time because I just have to like, I'm just 
extra, extra careful with every lyric, every note, every melody in a different way, you know, because every word has impact all of a sudden. And um, whereas score, you can kind of like, you know, every note is important for sure, mm-hmm. but it's not front and center like a song is, you know, and so it's out there naked, you know, and, and so it requires a different level of attention. Yeah. Um, and also on a show like This Is Us, you know, we there's a certain pedigree of songs we use on the show, and whatever I write has to be able to hang with that pedigree. So there's like a, you know, you know, it, it has to feel like it's of that world. Sure. You know, if we're if we're using songs by you know Paul Simon and George Harrison and um, Cat Stevens, you know, and all of a sudden there's an original song that that is like you know, one tenth is good, people will notice. So you have to kind of like, you have to, you know, because people watching the show aren't looking, watching, aren't, aren't listening to the, aren't watching the show and saying, oh, that's an original song, right? Nobody's watching the show. And except if you're someone in the industry who's a musician or who's like, oh, this must be an original tune written for the picture. You're just experiencing it as much as you are experiencing, you know, um, a Wilco song in there or whatever. And so it's, it's so I have to kind of be able to deliver something that's at that level and quality um, or, 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 you know, or it doesn't work. Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a relatively rare thing to do now, isn't it? I mean, I get the sense that most yeah. songs that are used in shows are just licensed pop songs or, or, yeah. or older songs that they're not original. So why go that route? Was that, was that a Dan decision or was that a somebody else decision? Well, there's, there are original songs players play, a, you know, are, are, are part of when it's part of the story. So for example, in season one, we had an episode called Memphis and Memphis was, the episode where older William, who's dying of cancer, takes his son, Randall, on a road trip to Memphis. And as part of that story, they flash back to the 70s where William was in a band and he had written a song that almost broke this band. Standing at the station, we don't know what to say. Looking out the window as you're rolling away If I'm gonna be alone Let it be with you Don't you cry We're gonna be alright Open up your suitcase When you get there tonight You're not alone I'm always Always 
So in a case like that, it has to be original. It、mm-hmm. couldn't have been, and it had to have felt like a Stax record song. So it had to have the feeling of like your Otis Reddings and and that feeling. Yeah, it's like you know a Memphis soul song. And so a case like that, that had to have been a, had to have been an original song. But yes, there's also part of Dan who knows that he's got a songwriter as his composer as well.、Yeah. So he's like, I know that if I write this in the script, Sid will write something, and and we hope it'll be good, <laughs> and、uh, and we'll take that chance, you know. But I'm sure in a case like that too, if I couldn't deliver for whatever reason, there were your John Legends of the world that would have, yeah, and somebody that could have written that song, and、um, and so you know you trust that. The talent is there to bring it, you know, when you need it, and,、mm-hmm. and there's also something very empowering about that too. When you have like a huge showrunner and direct, big directors calling you and saying, "We need you to write a song that's like that's going to basically be such a huge moment in this episode,、um, and and you're tasked with it," and so that's empowering too. And、um, but yeah, it's frightening as hell. <laughs> I mean that song that you mentioned from from the Memphis episode. That was a, I mean it was a soul、yeah. song. You know it was it was it was very unlike what you've done with Goldspot.、Um, yeah. How 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 much of a challenge was that for you? And what, did you get what kind of direction did you get beyond the script? The direction was we want this to feel like a Stax Records song. Like、yeah. it could have been on a Stax record. Like it needs to it needs to be that good. Like or at least a B side of a Stax record.、Mm-hmm. And Um, like a and and I remember, you know, I had a week to basically turn it around,、wow. and not just turn it around, but write it, record it, and get it ready. Like we had to pre-record the song because they were filming in a couple of weeks, and so I had to have it ready.、Um, and there was a lot of pressure on it. I remember just being incredibly. I mean, I was, I was, I was not overwhelmed. I was just, I was, I was, I was nervous. I was、yeah. just like, oh, what if I can't do this? And, but then I know that you know, and then, and then having listened to that music and and paying attention to what it is, I, I had come up with enough of a framework of the song. Like I had a melody that I came up with, and there was there was some idea of some lyrics,、um, but then I also had to make it real and believable, and it had to be as great as it could. And and at that point, I expanded my my、um, I just I I I I basically went into my phone and I was like, I have to call my friend Chris Pierce, who's a great singer songwriter who who sounds like Otis Redding when he sings, and and I need Chris to come in and help me finish this because he's going to add that authenticity to it, you know, because people watching the show. You know, are 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 again needing to feel it, needing needing are gonna it, it's gonna have its maximum impact that song if it's completely authentic and real, and、um, and so I I I I brought in the right people to help finish it, and it was Chris, and and then when we recorded it, we recorded it, you know, all live with a live band,、um, with with band with people who play on these types of records, you know, and so it it. Everything about it had to feel authentic, and and I think as long as you know, one of the things that I've always done in my career 
whether it's with gold spot or with my score is I always wanted to feel authentic. I, I never want to take a shortcut. I never want to go for when I can use an analog synthesizer from the eighties, I will go there. I would instead of using some like virtual instrument on a MIDI keyboard. Like I, I, I like going to the yeah. source of like where, the, where it is. Yeah. Um, this is us as a very handmade score. That entire score is acoustic guitars, my voice, cellos, pianos. It feels like it's made in someone's living room. And, and so everything is authentic. And so that song, as long as my end goal was making something authentic, then the path to getting there was already paved for me. There's also something really um, inspired about somebody trusting you to do something that you've never done before. There's something, you know, I, I, if someone, at, I mean, on a show this big, and what was arguably probably like our most, you know, it was our big episode from last year was that Memphis episode. It was it was that and the pilot were like the two big big episodes of the season. I think there were huge moments and and then for them to say, hey, we want you to do it. Somebody obviously believes you can do it when yeah. that happens, and that's also empowering, you know. Sure, so that gets you through it. Too. Sure, both of those shows, at least if we're talking about This Is Us and Runaways, they're both very character driven, but they're very different shows. How much of a transition yeah. do you have to go through, like internally and creatively, you know, between when you're writing these very personal, emotional stories about the Pearsons versus, you know, teenage superheroes, which is something entirely right. different. thing that I benefit from is with the two things is that the showrunners on both shows are super smart, nice, uh, creative, uh, and, 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 and leave you to be as creative as you want to be. And Stephanie Savage and Josh Schwartz on Runaways are some of the most open showrunners I've ever met my entire life. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are just like, you know, they, they want me to be as creative as I can be, and then we'll figure out what's right and what's not. And, and, and so when you have that platform, it's, you feel like it's, it, the inspiration is kind of endless, and you just don't feel like you run out of ideas. Yeah. Um, and with Fogelman on This Is Us, it's the same thing, where he's just like, you know, do your thing. And if it's offending anyone, I'll let you know. <laughs> but you know, so I think when you have that platform, it 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 makes you enjoy your work more, and it makes you do better work. And and then you kind of don't run out of ideas either. Yeah. Uh, and knock wood, like yet. I mean, I'm hopefully at some point I don't run into into that situation. But that's what happens. And 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 I also can't do what I do without my team too. I have a, I have a great team under me that assists me when I need and and helps me get it all done. Yeah. How, um, with respect to Runaways, how familiar with those characters were you before you got the gig? Not at all. Yeah. Did you go back I, and I read never, the I, books at all? 
I had never read the comics. Yes, I went back and like then started, you know, researching the comics after I got the gig. Mm-hmm. Um, but the script was also a totally different sure. thing. You know, the scripts are, are are an adaptation of it, and and the tone and everything is found in the script and the showrunners more than the original comic. You know, mm-hmm. the story might be there, but the tone is a totally different thing. I, I, in many ways, I was not the type of person that would normally have been hired on a show like that, you know? I mean, uh, coming from This Is Us, which is like a an acoustic, you know, homemade, organic-sounding score, um, to then do a superhero show, that I just, I, I, I'm normally not that person. I'm not the right person for those type of gigs. Because, yeah. you know, I, I, in people's minds, in my mind, I, I know I could do it. Right. I, you know, I... Uh, but in the mind of cre- other showrunners and creators and executives at Marvel, you know, so I think the fact that I got that gig was really cool because it it meant that they uh, trusted more. They, they they believed in how I could handle the characters and the relationships between the characters. And the only thing that would really change would be the instrumentation. And and that's exactly what it is. You know, I. In both shows, I score to the larger picture of, of these people and the connectivity between them and the relationships. And the only difference is that on This Is Us, nothing is plugged in. But on Marvel's Runaways, I plug everything in. Yeah. So, like, you, know. you, you said before in uh, another interview I, I was listening to or, or reading, I don't remember which, but you said that you felt fortunate in your career because you've been able to really write and play the music that you wanted to without many restrictions sort of on what you could do. Um, how much of that do you think is due sort of, I guess, to the, the quote unquote, the new normal in the music industry where, you know, the barrier to entry is so much lower. It's not this battle royale for, you know, the few major record company contracts, you know, where you have to sound alike and you have to give them a sound that they want. You know, how much of that is, is this, this environment that musicians are working in now conducive to basically just having a lot more freedom? Um, so I some of you cut out in the beginning. Can you repeat the question, the first half? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm sorry. The, they're cutting the grass right outside my window, and it's terribly loud. <laughs> no problem. Um, no, I was just saying, you had said in a previous interview that you've been able to re- uh, write and play what you've wanted to, like your music, uh, yeah. without many restrictions. And I'm just wondering how much of that, that ability to write what you want to and that freedom is, is due to this environment which musicians are working nowadays where you're not mm-hmm. necessarily vying for a few major contracts. You, know, you, can, you can put out your own music on the internet or you can you know, find other mm-hmm. ways to distribute. I think a lot of it has to do with that. I think there is, you know, specifically with television score, 
if we if we want it to be as specific as possible. Mm-hmm. We are in golden age of 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 television. Um, there are there there is an endless well of great shows out there. Uh, every every week, someone comes to me like, "Oh, you have to see this. Or you have to see you know, you have to see Killing Eve now. You have to see you got to see um, this new show on Netflix, or you have to see this new show on." on some channel that you never thought even had shows. Right. And, and, and so there is, there is, it is the most artistically competitive environment ever in television. I think it's like, there's so much great stuff out there that everyone's without realizing it, everyone's been raising the bar on everyone else. I mean, I think like the bar is raising and raising and raising and, and you realize that it's the bar is so high because, the quality of the art is high and, and the only way you get the quality of art to be high is when you let creators and showrunners and people who work on these shows from, from, from um, cinematographers to editors to composers to writers to directors be the artists that they always imagined they would be or set out to be. And, and, and so I, I think that's what it is. You know, I, there was a time in my life where I never wanted to be a television composer because I thought the music was like was not stuff that people paid attention to. It felt like it was just under the radar. It was it, it was just it was like going it felt like it was going through a machine of like the same stuff and everything sounded the same. And 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 that and I don't mean to be critical of composers in the 80s and 90s on television or two, early 2000s. It's more that that was my impression. Um, and it was also because maybe the quality of all that television wasn't that great either. Um, and it's changed, you know, television is the new film. Like, you know, I feel like there's so many shows you watch or things that you watch where you're like, this could, this is like a film festival entry. Um, and, and like a Sundance film festival entry or, or Cannes film festival entry. And, you know, it has that weight and that, artistic strength to it so that's really what it is and um and when you have showrunners like dan fogelman on this is us particularly who are like who have a raised the bar for network television um with with this is us and also are competing with the best of cable and the best of streaming um Dan wants the best from everyone on it. And the only way you get there is to not pigeonhole people into making them be, you know, you're making them into uh, musicians or artists that they're not. And so that's what it is. And I think that gives you the confidence then to keep on going and going and going and pushing and pushing and pushing. I mean, this season of This Is Us, the score became this very Indian sounding score. Like, I don't know when that transition exactly happened, but it slowly happened because I was just like, there's something karmic about this show now and this larger connectivity of life. And, and I wanted to bring in my own um, authentic voice to this because I know that world of the old Indian music. I mean, all these like kids are in India are watching this show because it airs in India. I get, I get so many Facebook messages or Twitter messages from people being like, Hey man, this is so, this is so deeply classically classical Indian influenced. Well done, and a lot of people don't know that, but that's it's true. It's exactly what it comes from. And 
I remember asking Dan, I said, is the score getting too Indian? And he's like, no, it's you. It feels great. It feels awesome. It's so yeah. special. It's original. And you, so I think that's what makes it special. Do, that do you encouragement think, from the showrunner and also with the world we live in. Do you think that that influence of the music on the show is going to go in reverse? Like, Do you think that the, 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 the writing will then be influenced by your music? I don't know about that. I mean... All I know is that there were a lot more silent montages this season <laughs> where there, I, it's almost like, almost like the writer's room was like, all right, we're going to stride it. We're going to write in a couple of mo- like silent montages. To yeah. the score. Let the music you know, shine. I think let the, like fiddle the score, you know, or it's like, and I, I felt like, I don't, I never asked Dan if like that was a conscious choice, but this season, yeah. especially there was a lot of like this season, especially there were a lot of that. So maybe there was a trust of saying, okay, the sound now is something that can sell what we want to, to, we can sell our ideas through this music as well. Um, but, but maybe I, I, I don't think that the music is going to inform the story. No, that won't because the story is a story. Dan's story is independent of them, but maybe on some level, as I keep on pushing this karmic card, you know, in the music, um, you know, maybe they know that that the music will also help 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 enhance the story, um, and 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 give more credibility to certain storylines. Maybe yeah. I don't know. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. Take care.